I'm Trevor Elio, and this is Conceptually Speaking, a show that's all about engaging experts in dialogue about the concepts and patterns that help us understand our world. Each week, I chat with guests from a variety of fields to better understand how their cognitive processes and social practices help them navigate complexity and solve wicked problems in their domain. Whether chatting with academics or YouTubers or educational leaders or neuroscientists, every episode is an invitation to explore meaningful questions and reconceptualize what we think and feel about education. For anyone who's been tuned into Conceptually Speaking for a while, you know I love finding new approaches, perspectives, and frames to tackle complex issues. Despite the fact that's a staple on the show, my guest for this episode, Dr. Sheena Mason, takes things to the next level. Dr. Mason is an author, professor, and creator of the theory of racelessness, a theory that, in her words, is a creative and forward-thinking approach that helps people stop the underlying causes and effects of racism, the existence of race itself. Unlike naturalists who see race as biological or constructionists who regard race as a social construction, Dr. Mason invites readers to become race skeptics. In other words, to understand that the traits we attribute to race can be more accurately described by terms like ethnicity, culture, social class, or economic class. For, as she argues in her upcoming book, The Raceless Anti-Racist, fighting racism by reifying the idea of race is like trying to stop a flood by dousing it with water. In short, Dr. Mason envisions a future that transcends race in ways that allow us to celebrate our shared humanity and value our many differences. All of us are really oppressed and subjugated to a matrix of sorts because of how racialization operates in this country. And so as an Afrofuturist, I'm about the life of future making and recognizing that we have to make the future today. But if I subscribe to the idea that race is a permanent feature, racism is a permanent feature of our society and it's inescapable, then I have to subject myself to being pessimistic and, and saying, okay, well, liberation for any of us then is impossible. And I reject that notion. I think that's part of, you know, the white supremacy project. And I, I refuse, I just refuse to accept it. Building on sociologists like Karen and Barbara Fields, authors like Toni Morrison and James Baldwin, as well as a bevy of literary scholars and critics. Dr. Mason's work is paradigm shifting stuff. So hold on to your brains, listen with an open mind, and brace yourself for a very different look at anti-racism work. Hi, Sheena. Welcome to the show. Hi, Trevor. Thanks for having me. Of course, I have been tracking your work for a while, and I am really excited to be uh, sitting here with you on Zoom uh, and ready to have this chat about your work on the theory of racelessness. So for Anybody who has not heard of you or your work, would you mind just giving kind of a brief general overview before we dive into some of the nitty gritty elements of this framework? Well, I'm an assistant professor of English at SUNY Oneonta, and I graduated in 2021 from Howard University with my PhD in English, where I specialized in African-American, Caribbean, and American literature. And the result of my long study of really everything to do with race and racism is a framework that anyone can learn and engage in and benefit from um, that seeks to help people become more clear-eyed about the causes and effects of racism and more specifically how to stop the causes and effects of racism. And I've come to call that framework the theory of racelessness. It's also now starting to be called Raceless Anti-Racism, the chapter of my forthcoming book, Um and I'm committing my life, whether it be through my scholarship and research or through my my teaching, to advancing and continuing to develop the framework and helping it decrease its invisibility. <laughs> as many people across disciplines, across industries as possible. Awesome. So thanks for that kind of brief overview. And um, would you mind kind of differentiating a little bit about what makes your perspective to anti-racist work unique from ones that are um, more widely known in the, the popular discourse? Uh, the primary distinction is that I've come to recognize to undo racism, the causes and effects, we have to undo our belief in race and our practice of assigning races to humans. Um, 
generally speaking, most anti-racists are working against racism. And I view anti-racist efforts on my part as seeking to end racism. And, and my mind is making a distinction between working against something versus working to end something. And I think that's also a critical distinction because whereas many people who are in the anti-racist space believe that racism is permanent, I contend that it doesn't have to be, even if it seems like it is, right? It doesn't have to be permanent. This is something that we should be seeking to end. But the only way we can end it and the only way we can make it impermanent is by recognizing how the very belief in race and our very practice of assigning races to humans is part and parcel of the causes and effects of racism. Um, and we have to get serious about recognizing that and then stopping those two um, causes in order to receive or experience the um, the effects and benefits of anti-racist work. And one of the things that I've enjoyed about your work as I've looked through it is for folks who might think that removing the discussion or the use of race as sort of a, a sense-making tool or, or concept, you know, I, I could see where at first glance, people might think that is perhaps hindering our ability to navigate and understand human difference. But really what you're doing is thinking about how we can be more precise with the terminology that we use and instead look at things like culture, class, ethnicity, these other signifiers and markers that actually do contain meaning uh, as opposed to race, which is, you know, if we're just looking purely at the amount of melanin in one's skin, there might be a lot of meaning projected onto that. But like as a actual feature, there there isn't meaning there. So could you talk a little bit about how this shift from thinking about race to instead having conversations about class, culture, ethnicity, language, et cetera, um, can add more nuance to not well, actually not only add more nuance to discussions of human difference, but also um, how that work can actually move us towards a more anti-racist society. Well, this is where the conversation gets tricky because there are folks like Morgan Freeman who would have us skip to the good part. And um, there's that famous viral clip of him saying, you stop calling me a black man and I'll stop calling you a white man to the interviewer. And um, and some people can read any number of things from me, from a tweet to my first book or my forthcoming book, and still interpret what I'm what I'm advocating for as me wanting to skip to the good part. But as you've also just kind of um, prefaced, what I'm really advocating for is for more precise language um, to identify, define, acknowledge the various hierarchies that exist in human society, and at the same time, not uphold those hierarchies with our language and the ideology that comes behind the language that we use. So one of the central tools of the theory as a framework is what I, what I call in the first book, the race translator, but what I've since renamed the racelessness translator. And this translator is simply an analytical tool and analytical know-how to be able to see or perceive that which is presumed to be or presented to be ra as race or racial and to translate that into racism itself, either the causes and effects or, you know, a symptom of racism or, as you said, economic class, social class, ethnicity or culture. And the reason this type of translation is critical is because this is not just a rhetorical, semantic, um, you know, pat oneself on the back and feel really smart <laughs> process that I'm advocating for here, right? If racism itself is hiding its face behind race, in addition to the things that add benefit and value to any of our lives, such as the the positive aspects of culture, then in order to uproot racism, the perniciousness of it, right? There's nothing positive about racism. Then we have to be able to separate racism from something like culture, from ethnicity, from economic and social class. Um, 
And we have to also be able to recognize where all of these things intersect as well. So that's the work of the theory. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, it's really hard work. I'm at a point now where it's it's just natural. But um, at, at the earlier stages of my journey through all of the ways of thinking about race and also racism, it was really, really hard to do work. Uh, but it's necessary work. And I can tell you the people that have worked with me and my, such as my students, inevitably they come to me and say how grateful they are to have been exposed to ideas like mine. Um, because although it, it was initially contradicting virtually everything they've been taught up until the time that they find themselves in one of my classes, um, they find that they can't unknow what they now know. They can't unsee what they now see. And they feel like they're better human beings because of it. And I think, I think if if we're being sincere about anti-racism for fellow anti-racists out there, um, that's that's the result that we fundamentally want, right? Is to to create better versions of ourselves and um, to create a future that's better for all of us as well. Oh, and the last thing I'll say, Trevor. So in this, in my forthcoming book, The Raceless Anti-Racist, I actually revised my tenets to state more explicitly what I've been saying all along, um, but that kind of could get lost in translation for some folks. So my first tenet is now that our belief in race and practice of racialization are not meaningless because racism and valuable aspects mm. of humanity hide behind what we call race. Yeah. And that to me means, you know, a common conception that you expressed earlier was that race is superficial, right? And it's and in that way it's artificial, it's skin color, it's it's skin color, and then we attach all these meanings and, and such to it. But it's actually my contention and what I'm trying to illustrate through my work is that race is not skin color, because if it was skin color, then it would be biological. There would be a biological basis for the disdain or um, privileging that we attach to human beings based on supposedly skin color. Um, and also, if race was skin color, if it was synonymous, we wouldn't there wouldn't be anything to eliminate or perhaps even correct. But in fact, it's because race is the dehumanizing apparatus that gets attached to human beings in societies where racialization, the assignment of, of racial identities exists. That's the reason why it's thoroughly pernicious. It's a thoroughly pernicious category. It's not artificial in that way. It's not meaningless, it's meaningful. And that's why we find ourselves butting heads in the public domain because we fall into the trap of being programmed to talk about race in the language of something like skin color. But it's not. It's not skin color. If it yeah. was skin color, it would it would be um it would be meaningless in a way. Yeah, so so I guess to revise my uh previous articulation. It's because there are meanings that are projected onto that that have a material impact on the way that we organize society, on the way that people interact, on the way that we understand other people. Um, it is not meaningless. And that's it's it's the sort of thing. And I've been talking to my students about this some too. Like it's very easy to say, well, you know, because race is a social construction, that it doesn't have meaning, it is whatever. We're all the human race. Um but because, to your point, there are these meanings ascribed to it, because there is a material difference um, in terms of how people move through life and experience life, um, you know, because of the meaning assigned to that, we can't just say it doesn't matter. Um, and your work, I, if I'm understanding correctly, is to begin to shift those meanings onto more adequate or more accurate signifiers, right, of, of other other things. Um, it's, a, it's a parsing out and a separating of this sort of homogenizing term of race that we use. Would you say that that's a more accurate summation than what I was saying previously? Yes, and I would add that race is also, we talk about it, so we talk about it again in the language of skin color, but race in a place like the United States 
it's not about skin color and it has never been about skin color. That's it true. has been yeah. about, you know, the one drop rule, the infamous one drop rule, mm. right? It's about, it's allegedly about ancestry. That's, and unfortunately, even though race has been disproven as biological for a long time now, we still teach young children in K through 12 that race is biological. That's what I was taught growing up. Um, but, but further to my point, right, even though we talk about it and learn about it as if it's ancestry, um, which, which of course can include phenotype like skin color as, as we're discussing, part of my work too is to help show people and demonstrate how fundamentally race, thereby racism is about power and disempowerment. It's never actually about ancestry. Why, why, when Thomas Jefferson is doing calculations of what, when can a person stop being black and start being white? Why is he doing that? Right? It's not. It's yeah. not for fun. It's not because he's sincere. Right? It's because if a if a generation of um, enslaved folk can have white children those white children by law cannot be enslaved right it would be an anathema to the whole premise of what chattel slavery is and that's fundamentally about power so if i dictate that a woman's children forever a woman's line right forever you can they can you can never have offspring that are white then forever you can be enslaved, which means forever you can be disempowered. Um, and that means forever I can hold and retain my power. That that to me is the work of the, the theory that I'm trying to help more people get to and grapple with. Mm. And it's not that other anti-racists aren't, of course, trying to do the same, the same work. It's that how we've done this work up until this point has unfortunately kept us in the machinery of racialization. Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually that might be a good segue to talk about the philosophies of race because you called race a social construction earlier, right? And that's one of the, the uh, my points of contention actually. <laughs> and um, that is not a social construction. And that if we open the door to a different way of viewing what race even is, then we can get ourselves out of some of the quagmires that we've already started to talk about. Yeah, and, and to the point that you were discussing about the role of power, it's operationalizing of those racial categories that have been used by people in positions of power historically to like either uh, hoard power or to restrict access to power. And, you know, like the, the creation of whiteness as we know it today was just a very convenient way to ensure that, you know, other immigrant groups that were banding together with African-Americans to try to have a sense of cross-racial solidarity um, that could challenge the way that power was being distributed to sort of break up that growing consensus. So I think what what is really powerful about your work and to the point that you are raising now is instead of anti-racist approaches that merely reify those categories, you're actually trying to dismantle the underlying machinery of racism, which according to your theory is the inevitable result of racialization, right? Yes, it's racialization and our continued belief in race. I mean, I guess you can't have racialization without that, right? But I always feel like I have to make clear <laughs> explicit that it's the both, right? Mm. That's absolutely right, because there are countless people who talk about the 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 limitations of whiteness and the effects that whiteness has on sometimes hindering discourse about racism right and i'm quite sure you haven't been living under a rock i'm quite sure you've heard of robin <laughs> d'angelo's white fragility right who, who comes right around the time where ibram x kendi's how to be anti-racist comes out and um for all the flack D'Angelo and folks like her get, if you recognize that what she's talking about, she talks about it in the language of humans, right? Like most yes. people do, right? She talks about so-called white people. Um, but if you can recognize as a sort of abstraction or metaphor, this concept of whiteness, 
And if you can recognize that racialization operates to empower or disempower different groups of people, then we can start to talk about whiteness in a way that isn't attached to, to humans, even as we recognize that it seemingly is and gets attached to humans, right? That there's no essence that we're talking about. White people don't exist. <laughs> you know, I'm with James Baldwin on this, on being white and other lies. Um, mm. White people don't exist any more than Black people exist or Asian people. But we've, we are taught that these types of racial people or racial groups do exist. And it's not by accident or coincidence. And that the disempowerment and empowerment that I think is truer that gets sometimes obscured um, because of how we talk about racism is that the elites of any time period, it, it has always been their MO to ensure that the rest of us, the masses, we just stay in the matrix, right? And so anytime, as you said, anytime people who get racialized as white saw themselves as aligned with any other racialized group, some the powers that be, they would recognize that alignment and come in and burn town halls down, chase out newly elected mayors, and then do media campaigns to to scare racialized white folks into being afraid of racialized black folks. And those campaigns, like in Wilmington, North Carolina, right, 1898, these campaigns were highly effective. They, I would argue that they still happen today just without the burning down of town halls necessarily. Um, and it's to, to keep so-called white folks and everyone else um, divided in voting in these uh, ways that often run counter to our own our own benefits. Um, and so the power that's being hoarded, to me, it's less about the powers being hoarded, hoarded by so-called white people and more about the powers being hoarded by the, the elites, right? The people who really have the most power in this country, uh, economic power, political power, right? Like tangible, that kind of power. And that's also work that I'm that's also an aspect of the theory that I'm hoping will be rendered clearer in my forthcoming book, because it's not to it's not to diminish the impacts, the material impacts that racism continues to have today. It's to expand our understanding of what those material impacts are and who is who is really impacted by those material impacts. And we can do a lot of that work if we if we know that whiteness has hint, uh, limitations to it, then we can do a lot of that work from outside of this thing called whiteness. And what does that look like? What new terrain um, can we actually cover together and explore together um, in search of the truth, you know, the capital T truth? And how can removing that limitation uh, benefit folks? Yeah, yeah, and and that um, rupturing of those categories, I think, is a really powerful way to unsettle people enough in their equilibrium of what they think they understand about race to have real growth and change, and not get people's hackles up immediately and begin to feel like, oh, I've heard this before, or you know, I know what you're trying to say, and uh, that's again what I find so powerful and insightful of, about your work is it really is moving the needle to have a different conversation um, and one that can open up new spaces for sense-making and solidarity, which is what I think we really need in order to improve the racial discourse in this country. Um, and, you know, you've mentioned James Baldwin. Um, you know, your, your dissertation is filled with references from literary studies. And uh, this work, at least at its inception, emerged from your engaging with um, African-American literary studies. So as an English teacher and just general literary nerd, I would love to hear a little bit more about that, um, especially because, you know, in, in the American literature course that I'm teaching this year, um, well, last year I taught Nella Larson's Passing. And this year I taught Toni Morrison's Sula. And a lot of the best conversations that I had with my students were problematizing some of the 
assumptions, categories, uh, ideas that they had about race and racialization and um, inviting them to think about these things in a lot more complex ways. So, you know, what I saw your dissertation was really taking that as like an entire curricular structure and a, and a pedagogy that got me really excited. So could you talk a little about the role of literary studies? Um, and in addition to that, like pedagogically, how you kind of bring this to your students? Yeah, so it always tickles me. I don't know if if um, if this has an effect on you too, but I frequently see people like saying, usually, you know, disgruntled folks on the Twitter sphere or X, whatever we're calling it. <laughs> I, I can't get out of the habit of calling it Twitter. Um, so I see people there saying things like, we need to be teaching students how to read, right? And, and arithmetic. And, and and that's it, that's all we need to be teaching them. As if English courses, <laughs> as a primary example, as if the primary or only focus is like, the only thing we can be doing as instructors of English is teaching students how to read. And mm -hmm. as if teaching students how to read doesn't include or require critical thinking and then like thereby teaching critical thinking skills doesn't include the include the teaching of history, right? Context, yes. <laughs> right? Yes. For anything that you would teach students how to read. It's like people have, some people have a very narrow understanding of what it is that is done in an English course. Mm. For me, my primary safe haven at growing up was school. And I read voraciously. I had the good fortune of having access to a public library and I read voraciously by the time I was 11 I was reading like every adult book in the in a public library I just couldn't get enough because reading exposed me to a world to worlds that I I wasn't experiencing like I experienced a lot of trauma and violence as a child and literature was like my escape so by the time I got to be an undergraduate and I was trying to decide what do I want to do with my life. The one thing I knew for sure was that I wanted to help people. And I thought initially I would be a psychologist. I knew I would get a PhD no matter what I was studying. So I'll do, I'll do psychology, I'll get a PhD, and then maybe I'll counsel young people. But a year and a half in, I was... <laughs> I was seduced by my literature course. <laughs> I'll um, do that. Those literature courses, they will yeah, seduce. Man. Because you know what? <laughs> I felt like I, I don't think I necessarily understood at the time, but hindsight often being what it is, I, I recognized even just subconsciously that literary studies for me, it was psychology, right? Yes. It was cultural studies. It was history. It was political science. It was all of the things like whatever you want literary studies to be as a literary studies scholar, that's mm. what it can offer you. And I needed that. My mind needed that. I have, you know, probably from all of the reading I did as a child, I have a very voracious mind and an expansive one. And I felt like literary studies was feeding me in ways that other disciplines probably couldn't. So I I jumped, um, you know, headfirst into literary studies. And I, I like to tell my students really on day one and then throughout the semester, this isn't going to be... Um, your typical literary studies class, whatever that even means, whatever a typical literary studies class is, like whatever ideas you have about what we're supposed to do in this classroom, I want you to suspend that because we're going to study data sets, you know, we're, mm. <laughs> we're going to study um, philosophies, but we're going to study philosophy through studying literature as well. Like we're going to read straightforward philosophy, but also literature is philosophy, you know, um, so have as open of a mind as you can, as we study these different texts together. Um, I'll, I'll also say one of my most favorite parts about now teaching, um, in literary studies is, uh, I have my students do artwork for their final projects so they can do anything from 
a, a digital magazine to a painting. I had a student last semester make a chair. Speaking of Nella Larson, we studied quicksand in my Harlem Renaissance class. And one of my students was really inspired by that novel in particular and our discussion of it. And he made like from scratch, he made a chair and he, he painted on it rest for the weary. Oh, man. And then they have to do an artist statement that to convince me like whatever you made has to do with what you learned. And so he painted the picture of why he made a chair for the, for, <laughs> for that class. Um, and the things students come up with is just amazing. They never cease to um, impress and inspire me. But I think that's the beauty of uh, literary studies, if we let it be that. You know, it's interdisciplinary and it's transdisciplinary. And I think that also, and how I think about literary studies, that also is reflected in my work because I can't get away from using the tools literary studies gives me you know, when you're doing close readings and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So even my, my, my forthcoming book, I, as a literary studies scholar, I'm doing um, uh, close readings of memoir and stuff like that to try to, to, to try to illustrate what I'm talking about in real life. And um, if we let literary studies be all of the things, I think that's how we can help more people starting from a very early age, right? Like the first year grade level that we start to teach English, which is um, probably kindergarten, right? You have reading. Um, I think uh, if we open the door to questioning everything, even just by how we teach a subject and what we include in that subject, that's where it's at for me. That And that for me, because I had mentors um, gift that to me and never restrict me and say, Sheena, why are you even thinking about that thing? Like, that's not literary mm. studies. Nobody has ever said that, right? Um, that's what I aspire to be as an educator. And that's also why I, I continue to be enamored by literary studies. Like somehow I'm a social scientist, but I, I became a social scientist through literary studies. Wow, you are are hitting on like all of my favorite things to talk about related to literary studies. So I almost feel like th this could be a whole other podcast. But um, similarly, my students uh, every year will hit a point where they're like, "This is an English class. This is like something else. Like, why are we talking about psychology and philosophy?" So like as we read Toni Morrison's Sula to kick it off, we read some excerpts from Bell Hooks all about love. We talked about like what is the Platonic idea of love. Uh, we looked at Elaine Badu, what is his conception of love? And um, that bringing in a philosophy of psychology, of sociology, um, enriches the conversation that kids have so much. Um, and it, again, it's not surprising that, you know, the theories that you're sharing uh, tonight and in your work more broadly come from that space of imagination, creation, interdisciplinary, um, transdisciplinarity. Um, and I also love that you give your students opportunities to do their final projects in uh, these multimodal forms. I mean, my, my, uh, I don't think we've had a chance to talk about this, but my dissertation is literally looking at how students use digital, multimodal, and material tools to produce literary knowledge. So that is like exactly what you have your kids doing in that class. Um, and, and I really do think that all of these things are connected in that they are taking a very expansive view and understanding of what... The discipline is and what it has to offer um not just students but like society more broadly um and and there does you know there requires you know some i don't want to say pointy elbows but it does require some disrupting of you know traditional conceptions of things be that literary studies or be that our understanding of what race is um and it sounds like you said that your students res have responded really positively to this so considering you are disrupting a lot of maybe popular notions about whether that's race or literary studies. Can you talk a little bit more about A, pedagogically, how are you doing that? And then B, um, why it is you think that your students are responding positively to it? Yeah, thank you. So I could also geek out about this, all, all of this stuff for an inordinate amount of time. Um, maybe we should have a, a, a part two <laughs> because I would love to have space to actually do that. Um, yeah, so 
in my dissertation turned first book, the last chapter I dedicate to um, specifically to pedagogy and um, and I give an example syllabus, um, which I mentioned just because I can give some insight into like how I think about constructing a course. Um, and how I think about constructing a course today, though I wrote that now at this time, it seems like forever ago, even though it was just what, three, three years ago. <laughs> Um, at this time, I still approach it pretty similarly. For me, I like to <sighs> I like to include writers and texts from different places, um, e like different countries and different time periods if I can. So like even in my Harlem Renaissance class, that you would think I would be constrained to like only the Harlem Renaissance and <laughs> only the canon, for example, of of Harlem Renaissance writers um, and texts. Um, but that's just not how my brain works, so I can't do it. Um, I like to focus on texts by canonized writers that are uncanonized. So one solid example I can give is Elaine Locke. He is known really as uh, by many as the forefather of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and uh, for a lot of reasons, because he has a new Negro this anthology, which is considered to be like the, the marked start of the Harlem Renaissance for a lot of folks. And he's doing a lot of interesting things aesthetically with that text. And yet he was a, an entire philosopher, <laughs> specifically a philosopher of race, class, democracy, pluralism, all of the things. But his philosophy of race doesn't get published until the 1990s when a scholar uh, recovers them really, and then publishes them. And even this many decades after the nineties, that side of Locke and what he actually thought about race and all of that, um, is largely understudied and unknown and in favor of maintaining the vision of Locke or the narrative of Locke that many folks have because of his other work during the Harlem Renaissance. So instead of focusing on the canonized texts um, of Locke, I focus on the never heard of before texts by Locke. Um, and I'll put that in conversation with a writer like George Schuyler, who usually isn't canonized, um, definitely isn't always liked or appreciated or valued as a thinker because he's really yeah like he goes pretty hard he's very sarcastic his tone isn't kind when he's criticizing <laughs> folks and how they think about race uh so he's left out of the conversation even though he started the conversation that led to langston hughes's the negro artist in racial mountain that led to du bois's criteria for negro art like He's left out of the conversation, even though he his um, Negro art hokum was the catalyst for their seminal pieces. So I like to focus on pieces and folks like that and um, include the links and Hughes's Negro artists in the racial mountain. Right. So that we can have a full conversation and presentation of all of the ways that people can think about race and what they think should be done with it. Um, and then we go into literature that expresses these various philosophies of race. Um, and I like, I say I like to include pieces from um, thinkers like Edward Glissant or Derek Walcott, Caribbean West Indian writers, um, uh, Paul Gilroy, his Against Race book, I like to include um, folks from other places because I think one fundamental disruption that I'm bringing to the classroom and, and to my, through my scholarship is that race doesn't travel, right? And that's one yes. of the tenets of the theory. Yes. And my revised articulation of that is that racism does not exist everywhere in the same way and it can be overcome. And that's what I mean by race doesn't travel. Racism isn't the same everywhere and it's not the same at every time. And for people in the context of the United States, for students especially, 
um, that's that's a point that they haven't even considered. You know, it right. almost sounds wild to them, right? Like blasphemy almost. And so how do you help anyone start to think about or consider whether or not racism travels, right? It exists everywhere in the same way. You have to expose them to thinkers from other places, which is why I, I try to put thinkers from other places in conversation with American writers. That was a very long-winded way to answer your question. No, no, it was, it was, it was beautiful. <laughs> and it, it aligns with, um, you know, to a much less significant extent, um, some of the work that I try to do in my class, my own journey, um, where I found that some of the I guess, stepping stones before encountering your work that made me, I guess, open to it and fascinated by it was reading the work of authors or scholars um, talking about race um, or racism uh, outside of an American context. Because, you know, how quintessentially American of us to assume that the rest of the world experiences race and racism the way that we do. So how do your students respond to seeing these different conceptions or ideas about race and racism in your class? I will say overwhelmingly positively, most of my students, um, and this is, listen, it's a combination of the magic that I bring to the classroom as a person, right? They tend to just love my personality and like who I am and how I educate. Um, and also the content. They tend to take class after class. I had, I had one student take a class with me last fall. And then in the spring took four classes, like all classes that I taught that semester, she was in that class. Um, and then she had the audacity to take another class with me this last fall. <laughs> I mean, they, I mean, this happens very frequently for me um, to my great excitement. Um, and inevitably um, these, these students that I speak of who respond so favorably it's not always that way, right? Like I had one student who has since graduated, but she told me uh, at some point, yeah, at first I thought you were crazy, Dr. Mace, um, but you know, the more I listened, the more I heard. And then the more I heard, the more I recognized that you were just spitting facts and how mm. I educate. I'm not just like up there preaching, although I do be preaching. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm showing students through evidence, right? Like it's an evidence-based discussion. And, um, and I think my integrity shines because I include, again, the range of philosophies of, of race and, and what people think, right? So it's not just a one-sided, you know, slanted presentation of the material, um, um, but my students come to appreciate my transparency. They come to appreciate my imagination. They come to appreciate even something as simple as, um, well, it's not simple, so I don't want to diminish it, but the fact that I, I wholeheartedly like believe, and I would audac audaciously say no, that we can stop the causes and effects of racism, even hearing that articulation from me, constantly and consistently um students express a lot of gratitude toward me and I feel very blessed and highly favored that it is this way because I recognize that it um it's not this way for a lot of my colleagues who don't even teach anything to do with race and racism you know I and that's why I think some of the magic comes through me and not just what I'm teaching um and I'll acknowledge that I always have at least one student in every class respond not so favorably. And mm -hmm. it's always through the anonymous evaluation at the end of the class where I'll have one student. You can almost always guess who the student is just based on what they say in the evaluation. Um, it's all, and, and why is it always a student who doesn't actually attend any of the classes? Like they came the first oh, week and, and decided shocker. that yeah. they weren't going to come to any of the other classes, but they were going to, for whatever reason, not withdraw and then blast me in the anonymous, you know, evaluation. That always happens every semester. There's one, one student who does that. Um, and how unfortunate. I, I, I really feel... Um, sad for 
those students because if they had just stayed the course and held their feet to the fire and and stayed feeling uncomfortable, we could have gotten through the semester together. They might have learned a thing or two. You know, they might have recognized that whatever I'm teaching in the classroom isn't um, conjecture. It's like actually my expertise. Like I actually know some things because <laughs> they they often say in the evaluation how um, it, yeah, it's clear that they don't view me as an expert. So, you know, sometimes I, I do think there's a little bit of racism and bias mm. happening with how they're viewing me and what they think I should think and what they think I should be teaching. So I I experienced that, but as I said, fortunately, the overwhelming responses has been and continues to be very positive. And I take that as a very, very good sign. I take that as a good sign because as, as you've already expressed, I'm disrupting a lot of things in my classrooms. You know, I'm not, and I'm not shy about it. I started on the first day and um, to, to, to recognize the level of disruption that I do <laughs> in my classrooms um, and to still have the overwhelmingly positive responses from 99% of my students, like tells me I'm onto something, number one, you know, yeah. um, it gives me hope for the, the potential effectiveness of curriculum that's inspired by something like the theory of racistness. And, um, and it gives me a lot of hope for, for our young people, because I teach at the college level, but if we get this right for K through 12, we can then help raise a generation or generations of, of young people into adults who don't have to unlearn the things that you and I have to unlearn, right. Who don't have to, um, suffer through the racelessness translation, as I was calling it earlier, because it'll be natural for them. And hopefully they then won't fall into the trap of the matrix. Um, that's my hope. That's my hope. That's my dream. And my students give me hope that it is possible. Well, it, and it sounds like the way that you frame your class and teach, you know, it's an invitation to join you in this project. And, and for me, that's what the best teachers do is, um, you know, through the way they teach to the way they uh, exist in the classroom. It's not just let's read these books together. Um, you know, it's, it's let's, let's explore this aspect of life together. Let's explore this social problem or phenomena. It's the, you know, the Freire like problem posing education. Um, there's this quote from Maxine Green that I quote often, it's a teacher in search of his or her own freedom, maybe the only kind of teacher who can arouse a young person to go in search of their own. Um, and I feel like the way that you talk about your class, it, it sounds like they, uh, you're, you're living that. And I, I really think if we're thinking about, you know, a great uh, site to be practicing the work that you're doing, the classroom feels like the perfect sort of, you know, laboratory um, for that kind of work, um, because it is a space where we can reimagine things a little bit, um, where like new borders and boundaries of what we can think or feel or or sort of enact um, happen. And, you know, in my experience, um, students are, are, are hungry for that, um, that, you know, even in classes I, where I've taught, I previously taught at a uh, performing arts school um, in Virginia. Um, and, you know, a lot of my students had, you know, fairly similar, you know, more progressive political beliefs as I did. You know, this was in the the aftermath of like the 2016 election. So they're just like, like the state of like, you know, we understand these problems with the systems, but I had to catch myself in moments where I didn't, I didn't want to sound like there was this foreclosure of possibility, right? Like we've deconstructed, we know the systems need to be deconstructed, but there, what was the value system informing their reconstruction, right? What, what was the project we were involved in that had a, a positive or an, an affirmative um, sort of goal or or I don't want to say end point, but at least a horizon to reach towards. Um, and you know, your work provides that. And it's it's interesting because it, it is um we didn't go through all the the um granular terminology, but um this idea of uh, skeptical eliminativism is one that is the the uh, approach to thinking about race racialization and racism that you advocate for in your book. And that that itself, even though it is a deconstructive project it is a a a positive project because it is about doing that work in order to have more precise more um 
powerful conversations about power, about identity. So I just have really uh, having this new vocabulary, even if I haven't specifically introduced it to my students yet, has been really helpful for me to begin to think about what does it look like to, you know, have the, the you know, the critical conversations, the deconstructive conversations, but also have a horizon to reach for. Amen. Listen, I am an <laughs> Afrofuturist. Yes, um, yes. And for me as an Afrofuturist, uh, and this this kind of, I think, also reflects my breaching of boundaries here because Afrofuturism is typically relegated to fiction and, you know, like other genres, music, um, film. But as an Afrofuturist, I'm, I'm primarily interested in, in what's called Black liberation. And what is Black liberation to me? It's freedom from racism, freedom from the strictures of racism. And Black liberation, to my mind, means a liberation for all of us. Because as I was talking about earlier, I'm not naive in thinking about how all of us are really oppressed <laughs> And sub and and subjugated to a matrix of sorts, um, because of how racialization operates in this country, and so as an Afrofuturist, I'm I'm about the life of future making and and recognizing mm -hmm. that we have to make the future today, right? Um, but if I subscribe to the idea that race is a permanent feature, racism is a permanent feature of our society it's, and it's inescapable, then I have to subject myself to being pessimistic and, and saying, okay, well, liberation for any of us then is impossible. And I reject that notion. I think that's part of, you know, the white supremacy project. Um, and I, I refuse, I just refuse to accept it. What Call me romantic or whatever. <laughs> I, I just refuse to accept it. Especially if you think about how young this thing called white supremacy actually is yes. in relation to how long humans have been alive, right? Like human history is a relatively young project. And if it, and if racism doesn't exist everywhere in the same way, that should give us hope and inspiration to recognize that it needn't continue to exist in the way that it does or at all, right? In the here and now. And so what pathways, what vehicles do we need to be able to create that future today? And I offer my theory of racelessness or raceless anti-racism as an invitation indeed to anyone within the sound of my voice um, to explore and to consider the possibility of creating a future together where all of us are rightly seen as human and where racelessness is synonymous with limitlessness. How do we get to that future? And what toolkits do we need to get there? And, it, you know, if if the sincerity in my voice doesn't reflect my my belief that the theory of racelessness is part of that future making project for all of us, then I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm a believer. So you got, you got me sold. Um, and I mean, that, that is just a beautiful articulation of the, the possibility of this work. Um, and, you know, I hadn't seen any explicit reference to Afrofuturism and, and the stuff that um, I've seen from you, but I, I have, sort of felt the resonance there. So hearing you kind of like say that, and, and again, I haven't read all of your work, so I'm sure that it's there somewhere. Hearing you say that is really um, powerful for me because it, it ties together a few sort of threads and, and through lines for other things, other projects and works that work that I'm looking at and doing. Um, and just seeing that as another facet or seeing this work that you're doing as another facet of that, it just has me really excited to go back to my own class and be thinking about, you know, pedagogically, what can I do curricularly? What can I do in my K-12 space to keep problematizing these borders and boundaries and the way that we traditionally think about, you know, these issues and topics. Um, and, you know, an, an American literary, uh, an American studies course feels like uh, really rich soil to begin to, uh, you know, uproot some of those assumptions that we have. So um, we're, we're probably, we're coming up on time. If not, this is, this, I don't care if this episode runs long. The conversation uh, is, has been amazing. So I guess to kind of close, uh, are there any, I guess, you know, I don't want to say like 
drag and drop or, or do tomorrow type things, but are there any short practical tips you have for teachers who are, are hearing this podcast and are interested in bringing this work into their classroom um, just to kind of wrap up and, and close and, and kind of leave people with a potential call to action? I, I will unabashedly be that person to say, pre-order my book, The Raceless Anti-Racist, Why Ending Race <laughs> is the Future of Anti-Racism, right? The book comes out in June. Um, but what I actually talk about in the book is the fact that people frequently want practical, um, like, you know, calls to action and, and stuff like that from me, which I completely understand, right? Because yeah, I mean, we're human. That's, that's, that's how our brain, our minds work. And I wish that there was something practical besides saying like, read everything that I put out in the world, listen to every podcast <laughs> I've ever done, you know, but if I'm being honest and if we're being fair-minded here, we're talking about um, solving and resolving potentially a complex problem that has centuries long history. And longer than that, if we consider that racism has always existed in, uh, in human history, um, at least probably always existed, just in different forms, right? Across time and across places. Um, so, so I feel like there's no practical thing that I can say except for to guide people to my website, theoryofracistness.org, to access the tools that I have there and the resources, such as the podcast, such as following me on Twitter, um, such as the various uh, open access essays, including comic essays that I've out there. And I, I know some K-12 um, teachers who actually use those comic essays in the classroom. And you can get hard copies mm. of the comic essays as well. So, I mean, I guess that's like a practical tip. But that's at perfect. the, I, I will just say that in closing, like at the end of the day, the thing that I am, am really calling people to action to do is to engage with my work on a deeper level than just this podcast yeah. can afford, because this these changes that I'm talking about here and advocating for it starts with you as an individual listener mm. you know mm. it's it fundamentally starts with you and let's not forget that the how racism operates affects all of us individually in different ways but it affects us and inevitably it affects us negative it affects us negatively and so your engagement with something like the theory of racelessness actually helps free you up, free your imagination up, free your heart and emotions up, free your intellect up to do and be the person that um, you're fully capable of, of, of being. And that's one of the benefits of the theory that I don't want to get lost either. It's not just about fixing how those people over there do things or think about things or act or whatever. Uh, it's really about uh, deracializing ourselves um, to access our own limitlessness. And if you do that for yourself, even as you expose other people like students to this kind of information and um, work, that's at the core, that's at the heart of all of this. Um, and that I think it's a it's a necessary part of all of this. Because if we're not, um, if we're not persuaded or if we're not completely understanding what I'm communicating, then how are you supposed to teach anyone? You know, how are you supposed to teach yeah. anyone else or help anyone else with it? No, that's that's fair. And and this this is work that I think one has to sit with and digest. And I think that that um, the graphic essay is, I think, a perfect way once one does sit and digest and metabolize these ideas to bring students in. But yeah, I guess it, it is really important to state that's not something that you would, uh, you know, you would do until you have really begun to take in those ideas yourself. And it does require some unlearning, uh, even just in the, even in the language that we use to speak and think about race, racialization, racism, um, you know, even as someone who has read your work and uh, shares your beliefs, I catch myself using the terms that I have historically used when I think and talk about these issues. 
So it does, it takes some time. Um, and I think that that is a great, you know, uh, call to action to purchase your book, to check out your, um, your website. And I will link all that stuff in the show notes um, because I'm sure that people are going to be interested, but I just want to thank you for this amazing, expansive conversation. Um, and uh, I, I definitely want to talk to you more about your views on literary studies and how you run your class, but that could be a part two in the future. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. 